This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. This month marks 50 years since a group of seemingly average people executed a remarkable break-in at the FBI. And in the process of committing that felony, exposed far greater felonies committed by our federal government. Cato's Patrick Eddington discusses the anniversary. You make note of a piece recently uh, saying, happy FBI Burglary Day. <laughs> uh, this was celebrating the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. So what did these people, what was these people's problem with the FBI exactly? Could have been anything, but what was it? Well, pretty much the same problem that we have today, unfortunately. I, th- I think that's, uh, that's a very, very fair statement. Yeah, these were a group of folks who lived in the Philadelphia area uh, in the in the late 60s. And, and I think actually uh, some of them still live in that area. But uh, they became part of the anti-war movement. Uh, the leader of the group, uh, Professor William Davidon, uh, a, a physicist at Haverford College, had gotten involved in the anti-nuclear movement in the 1960s. And that's how he came, one of the ways that he came to the attention of the FBI, as we now know. Uh, but by the, the late 1960s and into, into early 1970, he was hearing from an awful lot of friends in the anti-war movement, that they were convinced that J. Edgar Hoover's agents were actively working to undermine the anti-war movement, infiltrating uh, organizations, and so on and so forth. And to his credit, uh, Bill Davidon took a very scientific approach to this. He said, well, what we need is evidence. Uh, and then he realized that you know the only real way that they were going to get it was, in fact, to break into an FBI office. <laughs> And as it turned out, you know, they, they did some initial examinations of, of the Bureau Field Office in Philadelphia, but decided that that was just too much. Uh, but in, uh, in kind of the western uh, suburb of Philadelphia called Media, Pennsylvania, there was what was known as an FBI resident agency. You know, think of it as kind of a smaller field office. And that did not have anything approaching the kind of security uh, that the FBI main office in Philadelphia did. So... In December 1970, uh, Davidon, you know, started talking to some of his closest friends, people that he was confident uh, would not uh, look askance at his suggestion or even worse, potentially go to the the FBI themselves. And he managed to recruit uh, seven other people. And between December 1970 and March 7th of 1971, they ran casing operations against that media office. In fact, uh, one of the women in the group, there are five men and three women. One of the women in the group actually went in uh, basically and talked to some of the agents about you know, possibilities of, of employment with the FBI. And it was, it was nothing more than an intelligence gathering operation on her part. She was really slick. She wore gloves in the whole nine yards, so no fingerprints left behind, none of that stuff. That's one of the amazing things about these people, eight, eight people. Many of them academics, you know, some homemakers, some social workers, no intelligence community or law enforcement experience, and thus no tradecraft, right, in doing any of this stuff. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, they could teach it. Uh, the, the level of detail that they put into this was just amazing. And so uh, on, on March 7th, uh, interestingly enough, that was the very first story to appear on what would become the Pentagon Papers later. It was, it was in the Boston Globe with Tom Oliphant. It was the first time that Daniel Ellsberg actually went uh, went to a journalist. He, he continued to conceal himself. But the very next day, March 8th, um, was the uh, Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier uh, fight in Manila. This, of course, had been just you know globally promoted, essentially. And, and so the burglars, uh, the Medea burglars, uh, 
basically decided that would be the perfect night to do this because, you know, everybody would be pretty much distracted by the fight. And so they, they managed to break in. They had several close calls. I, I won't, uh, I won't give away the whole story because Betty Metzger, a former Washington Post reporter, tells the story beautifully, uh, in the book entitled The Burglary. Uh, but long story short is they got in, they liberated every document, <laughs> every document basically that was there and, uh, and they never got caught. And within, you know, a few days after they'd had a chance to process the documents and figure out what they wanted to do, they actually issued a communique claiming credit. Uh, you know, uh, one of the, one of the guys basically went to a phone booth, uh, and, and made the call to a local reporter who initially wasn't sure that he believed it, but then suddenly realized, yeah, this is the real deal. And they began sending out copies of these documents. And Betty Metzger, who at the, at the time was a young journalist at the Washington Post, was one of the recipients. And so she wound up taking this all the way up to Bill Bradley. And uh, the Post almost did not run the story. Catherine Graham, you know, really had the willies about it. And uh, it was kind of a preview, essentially, of what would happen, you know, three months later with the Pentagon Papers. But uh, in the end, to her credit, uh, you know, she uh, agreed with Bradley and Betty that the story needed to run and it got out there and it really got the ball rolling. Uh, and so this is the first the American people really learn about the skullduggery that Hoover had been up to essentially for the last 50 years. So they exfiltrated a great uh, volume of material. Yes. Uh, but it was a very specific line in one of these documents that uh, had caught the eye of Carl Stern yes. at uh, NBC News. And it, it, it read COINTELPRO hyphen new left. Yes. And uh, this actually, uh, Stern, you know, kind of gets turned on to this really a year after the burglary when he's up on the Hill. He at the time, as you indicated, was, was with NBC News and he was their Justice Department correspondent. And uh, he happened to be, I guess, in the Senate Judiciary Committee spaces talking to some folks. And he happened to see on a desk one of these liberated documents that had that notation of uh, COINTELPRO new left on the, on the slip, uh, on the routing slip. And so he filed a FOIA. And of course, the Department of Justice and the Bureau uh, blew him off, basically stiff-armed him. And so about a year goes by, and then NBC News decides to go ahead and file suit. And it becomes the first FOIA suit uh, by a, a news organization you know, trying to force this out. And uh, the Bureau and DOJ lose. Uh, they wind up initially having to cough up a four-page document, which confirms every single fear and suspicion that Davidon and every other anti-war activist had. Uh, and that is that it was, in fact, a coordinated enterprise level uh, national campaign by the FBI to try to destroy the anti-war movement. And by the time it was all said and done, by the time the litigation was done, if I recall correctly, uh, Stern and NBC News got the better part of 50,000 pages of material. So that is that is how this whole issue of COINTELPRO really becomes known to the, the larger public. Uh, and it ultimately does does lead. It's one of the things that leads to the creation of the, of the church committee a few years later. These were just, you know, not to uh, not to try to lionize these people, but these were just regular people. No, let's lionize them. <laughs> let's <laughs> no, but, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to do that. I mean, these people were acting uh, well outside the law. Oh, they, they committed a felony, right? I mean, it was breaking and entering, but that, that's what I find so interesting about it is that they committed a felony in order to expose greater felonies, a multitude of felonies committed by their own government. And, and it really does kind of bring us, I think, full circle uh, to our times in that, 
these these folks were uh, citizen whistleblowers. I've re- I've referred to them as citizen burglars, but maybe citizen whistleblowers is a better way to put it. And and they they along with Ellsberg, you know, kind of set the modern example, if you will. And then Chris Pyle, the the army the army whistleblower uh, who went to Sam Irvin's committee in early 1971 and revealed the scope of army surveillance, which became another you know massive scandal. So 1971, a hugely consequential year. Uh, in terms of trying to you know push this whole concept of open government, but this idea of of people of citizens especially being really concerned about what their government is up to, and the the existing political structure not being responsive, not taking these things seriously. Because remember that the Hoover Hoover you know went out of his way essentially to either cultivate members of Congress on the one hand, or intimidate members of Congress on the other, right? And he had, he had two, he basically had several lists and, you know, one was the list of people that he loved and the other was the people that were on the no contact list, uh, as he called it. And so when the systems of, of your government are not responsive and, and you're convinced that your government is doing bad things, it puts the citizen in, in the position of basically having to make the choice. Okay. Do I just live with this and accept that, you know, this is how things are, or do you take an action, even if it, it runs the gamut from civil disobedience all the way up to, to breaking an established law? Uh, to expose this wrongdoing. And of course, I think about people like Thomas Tam, uh, who was the guy that really turned the New York Times onto the Stellar Wind program, you know, initially a DOJ employee. And then of course, we we, we think about uh, Chelsea Manning and, and Edward Snowden, you know, more recently. And all of them ultimately had to take these kinds of actions in order to expose these other criminal, if not unconstitutional acts that their government was engaged in. And it speaks to the level of dysfunctionality, really, of congressional oversight, uh, and, and if not co-optation in many respects. Patrick Eddington is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.